From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Dave Coventry and Andrew Gorsica from Mountain Brook Vineyards in Tryon, North Carolina. Andrew's family purchased the Mountain Brook property some years ago and began a major transformation. Dave is Mountain Brook's winemaker and brings with him years of experience from the West Coast. They talk to us about how they're continuing to evolve the experience at Mountain Brook and are working to demystify wine. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. Join us as they take us through the next chapter in the history of wine. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. All right, so we are here today at Mountain Brook Vineyards with Dave and Andrew. Welcome to Cork Talk. Well, thank you for having us. It's, it's a great thing to be here and get to talk about our our favorite subject. I think it's everyone's favorite subject. So. It should be. At least not. for those who listen to this podcast anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so Dave, Dave, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do here at Mountain Brook. All right. My name is Dave Coventry. Uh, I'm a native of Monterey, California. I moved out here about eight months ago at the very, very kind invitation of the owners of Mountain Brook, Jonathan and Vicki Redgrave. Uh, this is my 28th year in the business of winemaking. I was a Monterey county native and so I did most of my winemaking there and really had accomplished everything I could accomplish in the area and um, Jonathan and Vicki got a hold of me and said hey if you really really want to expand your career and your understanding <laughs> of wine and make your life exponentially harder why don't you come join Mountain Brook and we'll see what we can really do and I have to say I have been spectacularly successful in all of those things um, the chance to come here and get into uh, the North Carolina wine wine culture and help expand it and raise the bar of, of quality and expectations is absolutely wonderful. I look at the history of North Carolina, the wine culture goes back 200 plus years, but I feel like right now I am part of the first new generation and I'm very, very proud to be here to, to, to be of service not only to Mountain Brook, but the community in general. Awesome. Andrew? Hello. Um, well, so my name is Andrew Gorsica. Um, I'm the assistant winemaker here right now at Mountain Brook Vineyards. My parents are Jonathan and Vicki, so I am the son. Uh, I kind of got into this by a happy accident. Uh, I was fortunate enough to work with uh, Dennis Lanahan, the previous owner of Mountain Brook Vineyards, when my parents were in the process of purchasing it. And seeing the an 80-year-old man who just had a love and dying passion for this place. Um, it really rubbed off on me and I can kind of continue that. Um, I did not go to school for this. Uh, I went for kinesiology exercise science at James Madison University. So kind of going into wine was not what I thought I was going to be doing, but I've loved absolutely every second of it. Um, and yeah, I've been here since the beginning for five years since they purchased it in 2018. Um, and yeah, I feel very, very thankful to have found this place, honestly. So, um, and I'm excited to, to make some amazing wines here, uh, especially with 
our winemaker, David Coventry. It's been a pleasure working with him and um, kind of progressing everything here. So I'm excited for the future. So let's let's before we talk future though, let's talk about the past and, yeah. and Dennis and Miriam and and what Mountain Brook was before your parents purchased the property. Yeah. So originally it, it started out. Dennis was a retired lawyer from Jacksonville, Florida. Found 75 acres here in Western Carolina and um, purchased the land. Built a little uh, apartment building with a garage underneath uh, for the first building on property. And I think with a lot, like a lot of people, um, he got bored with retirement and tried to think of things that he could do to kind of um, fill the gap. And he did some research and actually found out that this area was well known for growing grapes previously. Um, and then prohibition came around and kind of wiped all that out. So he started by planting about five to seven acres uh, with bridles being Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Petit Verdot, Pinot Grigio, um, and Chardonnay. And was doing that in about 2002 until about 2008 or nine, um, he was just selling all those grapes to the Biltmore. So he was just farming the land. Um, and then got the idea to uh, go into the winemaking process and did some studying at Surrey Community College um, and opened his tasting room in 2012. So started doing the tastings in his little green apartment down here, converted his garage into a barrel room, functioning <laughs> barrel room, um, which is awesome. And I still have people that come in uh, now that tell me that, they did the tasting in there and he would yep. bring them down the stairs yes. and show them the barrel room beneath the apartment. Um, and I love all those stories. And in 2014, he built the building up top of our top lawn tasting room. It's a Dell Tech house. Um, so that was his home. And he moved his tastings up there in 2016. Um, and my parents moved down to Lake Lore in 2016 and did a wine tour in 2018 because we were from Northern Virginia. The wine scene up there is um, really growing. And so they kind of took a trip and were fortunate enough to find this place. The uh, story of how they purchased it is actually really funny. Um, they went to Parker Bins, came here and my stepdad had to leave. So he was on a plane at GSP or at the airport. And my mom came here in a Notre Dame sweatshirt. and. Um, Dennis is a devout Catholic. He thought it was a sign from God to <laughs> offer them the property. So um, that kind of started everything and they talked about it uh, and we're like, okay, we're going to do this. And so they put the offer in and everything. And my jo uh, Jonathan, my stepfather, quickly asked my mom and said, so how are the wines there? And she said, Oh, I forgot to try them. So they um, <laughs> did everything without trying uh, trying the wines at first, but um, luckily that wasn't a problem. They were making great wines prior. So um, yeah, and then the rest is kind of history. We've been building on ever since then. So It's a fun story. Yeah. And there were so many fascinating parts of that, that having been in the industry for 30 years, that I have heard over and over and over <laughs> again, things like... Uh, wine wine making is not a is not a job. It's a vocation. It's a calling from the Latin voca vocare. Um, it calls to you. Um, nobody at the age of 16, 18 years old goes, oh, I want to own a winery and be a winemaker. Yeah. Unless your last name is Mandavi, Wente, <laughs> right, right. Marens, mm -hmm. Rothschild, something like that. 
It's a vocation. This job finds you. This, vo this vocation finds you. Um, this is something that you do because you absolutely have to do it. You have no other choice. It calls to you and you answer the call. Um, it's something that is, uh, you do for the love of it. It's derived out of, out of passion. Um, it's, it, we were talking about this before you hit record. I said, this is not a job as much as it is a lifestyle choice. Uh, it's the hardest work you'll ever do. We work harder than anyone I know. We also have more fun than anyone I know. That is the trade-off. If you love this thing and you can immerse yourself in the joy of what it has to offer, the possibilities are limitless. I like to joke that I'm limited really only by my imagination when I when we go to make wines and taste and these kinds of things. Um, and I think we have, which is unique to the area, the benefit of ownership that is 100% committed to not only making Mountain Brook, taking Mountain Brook onto the world stage where we know it belongs, but in helping everyone in our immediate area, in Western North Carolina, through the Yadkin Valley, through the entire state of North and South Carolina, and really the, the Southeast and, and, and East Coast. Jonathan told me, I said, Jonathan, why are you doing this? And he said, David, he very serious man, <laughs> David, I have taken so much great wine out of the world, it's my duty to put some more back in. Hmm. And I thought, that, now that's an honest point of departure. I hadn't heard that one before. And uh, we just have access to um, the tools, the commitment, uh, not only the, the monetary backing, but in a very, very real way, that really spiritual backing where you believe, you have faith that this is the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, clearly from from the story Andrew just shared, you know, his mom and and the the divine intervention, it seems, um, you know, that's there from the beginning. So, talk about so so when they bought the property, things are things look a lot different now than than what it did then. So, talk about some of the transformation that's happened over these last several years. Yeah, um, it's been a major transformation. Uh, Dennis was doing about one hundred to three hundred cases. Um, we've fluctuated to almost yeah that's it it was about 100 300 cases so Jeez. we have fluctuated up to uh i think previously last year we got up to about 5,000 cases um so a big jump there on the production side we have added many buildings since then in 2018 we added a couple pavilions um for outdoor shade um a wine hut for service aspect um and we've kind of added up, up there a lot more um, and including down in our production side, we've added a couple more larger stainless steel tanks. We've added our barrel room and events center with a bridal suite um, to, for weddings and such, and also for holding many, many barrels now <laughs> since our production's kind of jumped up so much. Um, and then also focusing on the service aspects up there with a large fire pit, um, another lower lawn pavilion for music that's coming up and also um our we like to call it the fire hut next to the big fire pit over there for additional service um and smaller fire pits over there for when it does get cold to kind of accommodate everything so um constantly building here there's always something else we did also back in 2020 um replant all of our vines here on the estate so um, we cleared about 12 to 15 acres of pine trees and replanted about 25,000 vines 
um, in 15 acres. So a uh, lot has been going on here on that part, but um, now most of our production is coming from our Red Bell Run vineyard that we've been overseeing and managing that has about 27 acres of vines over there. Um, but yeah, so that one's got about, that one's also got Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Merlot, Chardonnay, Viognier, and Pinot Grigio over there. And then the varietals we planted on property here were Cabernet Sauvignon, Petit Verdot, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, some Malbec, Sauvignon Blanc, and Pinot Grigio. So those were the main, so. Um, I'm going to personally miraculously change the Pinot Grigio into Pinot Gris, but that's my own question. Pinot Gris, that's fair. <laughs> I keep please, saying that. Please, I, I, I totally It's a little more elegant that. than Pinot yeah, Grigio. I totally but, agree you know, with that. I like French better than Italian. Okay, but that's so our first of many digressions, I'm sure. <laughs> um, what's the difference between Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio? This is for something for all the wine aficionados out there. Um, it's basically the same grape, but Pinot Gris, the French version, mainly from Alsace, some from Burgundy, but mainly from Alsace, rich, ripe, more complex, mm -hmm. a weightier, I think, more more transcendent experience. Pinot Grigio from Northern Italy, perfectly lovely aperitif. Sure. Lighter style wine. They fulfill very, very different roles in life. Um, for my my purposes, I'm an Alsace guy from way back. <laughs> Domains in Humbrick, my hat's off to you. And um, amongst others. And yeah, that's that's what we'll kind of go go forward with here. Um, when you're a winery like this, um, we cannot be all things to all people at all times. We can be most things to most people most of the time. And that's what we're trying to do is give that range of not only wines, but of, of experiences too. Um, Andrew mentioned in the fire hut and the, our little lawn service area, beautiful amp, uh, amphitheater. That's the original, really lovely, open, informal mountain brook experience and currently where we're sitting if you had a camera you could see this beautiful barrel room that we're going to open um what we call the experience by mountain brook vineyards the experience we call it and it is where uh we can do something that is not being done in the area we can have a very luxury incredibly upscale high touch five-star experience if um, you're an adult with your family with your friends and you can't get away for a week-long vacation, but you have a Saturday, Sunday, Friday afternoon, you can go remove yourself from kind of the normal humdrum everyday world. And you can come here and have a really beautiful, very intricate, uh, elegant, again, luxury experience. And that's something that uh, we have not offered here before. And we really wanted to offer that to folks so that when they came here, they could really choose their level of uh, what they wanted to do my way of thinking about it is we wanted to meet people where they are. If you just want to come have some fun in the sun, we can help you out. We're more than happy to do that. If you want to come have an otherworldly experience and really get um, into the lap of, of luxury, learn something, have a quiet, reflective moment, and enjoy some wine and learn, we can help you with that too. Sounds awesome. I, I'm hoping. So much of this business is to have a vision. You have to have a vision for planting the vines. You have to have to. You have to have a vision, as Andrew and I have discovered intensely. You have to have a vision for making the wines. You have to create all the flavors. You have to. You have to cut all those jigsaw puzzle pieces to make the eventual picture that you want. And you also, when you uh, envision how the business is going to run and how you want people to engage with it, you have to have a vision for that too. 
Yeah. No, I was just going to say that I'm, I'm very excited about that since, you know, going out to California a few times, I've seen the wine culture out there. It is well established. It's thriving out there. And we're in a, such a youthful phase here. It's exciting to be able to share the information that we have with the general public about everything and seeing how excited they get about it and just just the whole mystery of wine that we get to share is very exciting and uh, I'm looking forward to letting that experience be an option for people here as well. So um, so are, are you able to describe a little bit more about what that experience will, will look like kind of? Yeah. So when they walk in the door, what's mm -hmm. it going to be? So yeah, they'll actually be walking in um, to the uh, top doors of our barrel room um, and they'll be greeted by a host. We will uh, also be having reservations for this as well, okay. so that way Makes that, sense. Is, that is available. Um, but <clears throat> they'll be coming in. We will uh, have a host kind of seat them down next to where all of our barrels are. So we will be moving all of our barrels onto three high racks. They will line each of the whole walls of this room. Hmm. And we will be uh, putting in very nice furniture, um, nice tables and chairs, and each... Um, each tasting will be guided by one of our uh, uh, servers who a lot of them here are WSET level two certified or WSET certified level one. So um, they have a lot of knowledge in it and they will be trained by myself and uh, David Coventry, our winemaker on the whole process of the winemaking um, that we do here. And it'll be exclusive wines that are not really offered up at our general tasting room, um, a little bit more higher end reserve wines that um, we've really taking a lot of time and care and effort in. And um, we'll be guiding them through the whole thing. It'll be table side, it will not be flights. It'll be uh, a server coming to you with the bottle, explaining the whole process of the bottle, giving you the history of this place, telling you how that wine was made, um, and also the varietal characteristics that you might see, everything. I think that's really um, huge, especially uh, in this area where people are not no, don't know everything about each varietal and the winemaking process, but um, what did you say? That what's the thing you say? We we want to not demystify the we wine. We want to demystify wine without robbing it of its magic. Yes, and mm -hmm. there are so many people in this area that have this. They're at the point in their lives where they want to learn about wine. They know that there are aspects of life of fine food and wine that perhaps they have not been exposed to except very tangentially and they want to learn. And life is about relationships. They are coming here and we develop a relationship with those people to help teach them and to help them learn. They're being vulnerable and coming to us and they're saying, we have questions. And we are saying to them, okay, we have answers and they're good answers. Uh, there are no bad questions. I have heard some absurd answers <laughs> and we're not going to do that. But we want this to be, um, I mean, what have I called the things that I've done in my life? I've occasionally done something like this and called it a flavor research center or a place of learning or a temple of wine or something like that. It's where you can come and really immerse yourself in something that is one of the oldest traditions in, in humanity. Wine is such a civilizing thing. We use it for rituals throughout thousands and thousands of years. We christen ships with it. We use it at moments of celebration, Valentine's Day, Christmas, New Year's, Valentine's Day. I mean, some religions use it as a sacrament. This, this, this history of wine, this culture of wine has been part of our humanity for so long that to come here and really 
be able to immerse yourself in it and feel your place in that in that history it's just a wonderful thing and that's for the customers when i when andrew and i talk and laugh about these things we get to be part of the creation and we're part of that creation story that's a great deal of fun we're honored to do it but we also feel the weight of that responsibility certainly the greatest honor we can do the past is to make the future brighter and that's what we're trying to do yeah and i think one thing that's also very unique about this is you will be tasting among the barrels where these wines were stored um you can go pick out on the wall that's the barrel this wine came from this is why we use that barrel give all that kind of background and everything to it too so It'll be very in-depth and very cool to see everything um, when it's all come together here. Um, and that'll be launching the first weekend of May. So, All right. Yeah. Just in time for North Carolina Wine Month. Yep. So, perfect timing. That. Perfect timing. <laughs> it's almost like we planned it. And speaking of timing, we're actually at a pretty good spot for a quick little education segment. Uh, but when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about what you do in the process of winemaking to kind of demystify it without taking away that magic. All right, we'll do. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thanks. So where are we on this journey again? I always forget like what we talked about last time for some reason. So <laughs> we're, we're somewhere yeah. in the 17th or 18th, 1800s, I think, right? Somewhere there. That's correct. Yeah. We left you on a big cliffhanger in the middle of the 1800s last, last episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Got yeah. It. So yeah, okay. tonight we're going to finish the, the journey through the century. All right. Excellent. Yeah. So just as a quick, quick recap, during the early 1800s, we had a lot of stuff happen. Um, we had the entrance of Australia and New Zealand, uh, wars, of course, colonialization, trade. Um, here in America, we had our manifest destiny and westward expansion, uh, gold rush, and global industrialization, so worldwide happening. And it's kind of interesting to note that industrialization grew really quickly during this century, but it actually had little direct impact on wine. So just wanted to point that out. Um, but what we see as the biggest player in the century, and specifically in the second half of the century, actually came from nature. So I'm not going to give that spoiler alert away just yet. So just hold on to that for a little bit. I'm going to, um, <clears throat> yeah, drag that one out for a little bit. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, we get some highs and some lows during this century, um, especially, you know, in, through the wine lens. So going to kind of jump around, but going through it kind of country by country here a little bit. Um, I found one interesting note that the first winery in Israel, so we're going to start in Israel today, um, in modern times was established back in, so kind of not quite the second half of the century, but just under the wire there. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, but then we're going to move back to France here. And so we get a, a guy in France named Louis Pasteur. I'm sure you've heard of him. He's very famous. He was born in 1822, and so he's important. We're going we're gonna to do a little mini deep dive into him, but he was just an average student, and his original interests and skills were actually in painting and drawing. So while we really care about what Pasteur has to do with wine, we first have to mention his namesake, which is, as we all know, pasteurization. So what is pasteurization? Well, it's a process where you kill virtually all bugs and microorganisms by heating rendering them sterilized. And in the mid-1800s, spoilage of liquids and foods was a 
huge social problem. And Pasteur's work in inventing sterilization by heating was huge, like so important. So thank you, Louis Pasteur. Um, in 1860, he described the process of fermentation. Now, obviously, it's not like he invented fermentation. Wine has been fermenting long before Pasteur even wrote about it. But nobody really knew what was happening. Obviously, we knew about yeast, that they existed, was known even long before Pasteur. But he was able to show that fermentation was not just a strange, spontaneous activity, but instead a predictable process where as we know now, yeast eats sugar, and that creates alcohol and carbon dioxide. And of course, all this is based on how much sugar is available for the yeast to consume. So really important. Again, it's not like he invented it, but he was the first that could show this process and that it wasn't just happening. But he didn't stop there. No, no. Another problem with wine in the 18th was that wine turned sour very so. Pasteur came from the, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce this, but the Jura Mountains in eastern France. So quick pause while I get corrected on that. No, <laughs> no it's good. It seems oh, okay. reasonable. J-U-R-A. So, yeah. Jura. Ah, oh, there we go. That R gets me. Um, yeah, but so he, of course, had a vineyard because who didn't in that area? And if you're French, I think you just are born with one. I'm not really sure. <laughs> Don't remember. <laughs> we'll get our fact checkers to look that up. Um, but Pasteur collected numerous samples of wine with all different faults, and he put them under his microscope and saw that each defect was being caused by completely different microorganisms. And he noticed that the more bacteria in the wine, the quicker it went bad. I mean, it seems um, logical. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But again, like he was maybe the first just to, to realize this. Um, and he discovered that bacteria needed oxygen. And the more oxygen, the faster the bacteria multiplied. So we know we want to keep oxygen out of the <laughs> winemaking process. Um, so again, he was one that very important for this reason too. And if that weren't enough, he then went off and invented a vaccine for anthrax, cholera, and rabies. He was really busy just for, you know, really enjoying painting. Yeah, like what can't this guy do? <laughs> and I think he died in his 70s. So like he did all this and... Quite a short amount of time. Yeah, I wonder what the life expectancy was back then, though. Like, that might have been old. Yeah. But even still, like, he got a, a ton of stuff done. Hmm. Thank you, Louis Pester. All right, but now we interrupt this history report for... Dun-dun-dun-dun. Actually, I need something more ominous. Dun-dun-dun. That's better. Phylloxera. And oh, we're going to spell no. it with... Yeah, with three X's, because it's just so bad. Um. So, here we are, still in France. And in 1863, the vines began dying for no apparent reason um, in a place near A-R-L-E-S. Arl? Arl. Arl? No, it's Arl. You would pronounce Arl. S on the end. Okay. No S on the end. <clears throat> no, um, yeah. So we'll learn all about Arl next year. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, and this is in southern France. And each year, further patches of vines became sick, and they failed to produce proper leaves and shoots, and they couldn't ripen a meager crop, and then they would die. By 1868, local scientists discovered that there was a tiny yellow aphid that clustered around the roots of the vine and would suck the sap and poison its root system. However, the rest of France took no notice because, you know, it's agriculture. You got your good years, you got your bad years, stuff happens, right? Um, but this infestation started advancing up the Rhone Valley in 1867, and it arrived in Bordeaux in 1869 and in Burgundy by the 1870s. So there were two major issues. First, how did the aphid spread? And second, how could you kill it? So the aphid crawled through earth 
and it also flew, or well, it flies, it's still around, um, and it could also be blown by the wind and could be carried on boots, clothing, machinery, and on cuttings of vines. So, like, how can it not spread? Um, secondly, like I said, how could you kill it? So they developed a lethal mixture called carbon bisulfide, which if you injected it into the soil would kill the aphid, but it could also kill everything else too, including mm. your vines. Mm. And it was also very flammable. So maybe not the best choice. <laughs> um, but it was realized that phylloxera was indigenous to Northeast America and it did not harm the native vines there. So the pest had arrived in Europe on a shipment of ornamental vines, and experiments of grafting these French, or French vines onto a rootstock of American species showed that phylloxera did not kill the American rootstock. So initially, um, there was a really massive resistance to allowing grafting with the American rootstock. But as the plague of phylloxera spread and spread, they got a little more desperate, and the resistance gradually dropped an acceptance group. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit more about phylloxera and this aphid. They are minute little insects, less than one millimeter in length, and you can't just see them. You have to have magnification to see them. And it um, initiates the formation of galls for feeding on grapevine roots and leaves. So not so good. Mm -mm. Doesn't sound like it. Yeah. Now, I was going to ask for a um, sound bite here. <laughs> <laughs> Either cue the Indiana Jones theme, Indiana Jones theme song, or possibly the Team America World Police theme song. <laughs> America, because um, America's here to save the day, you guys. We, we did it. So we talked about phylloxera, how it spread, how it was so bad, and how they eventually came up with this idea. But do you know who did it? Was it? What Louis, do we know about? It wasn't Louis Pasteur, was it? <laughs> no, I think he was too busy um, on his other stuff. Mm, okay. Vaccinations, maybe. No, so kind of it's a, well, there's first, there was a guy named Charles V. Riley, and he was actually the first state entomologist for Missouri, and he was the guy that identified phylloxera as the pest that was destroying the vineyards in Europe. So thank you, Charles V. Riley. We also have another American, um, which is good because it's, you know, July, so like American independence, we did it. <laughs> uh, but we get this uh, Texan scientist named Thomas V. Munson, um, and he actually was the first one that suggested grafting European vinifera vines on American rootstock. Now, lo and behold, we know that it worked, um, and he was the one that suggested this to French officials, thinking that it could save their wine industry. And we already talked about there was some initial reluctance. My editor's note is that maybe it was the Texas accent, <laughs> that lost things in translation, or just the French pride, but we know that they resisted that solution and that idea for 16 years before they started mm. uh, moving forward with that. <clears throat> yeah. Now, really interesting things here is the rootstocks that Munson recommended were actually Texas native that were find in, found in the, uh, near Temple, Texas, and these wild grapes can still be found there. Now, he picked these not just willy-nilly and not just because they were what was close to him, um, but because soils in that location closely match the limestone soils in French vineyards, and those grapes are highly tolerant of high pH limestone soils. You know, little method to the madness there. Um, later on, he was also asked to advise on phylloxera-resistant rootstock for California vineyards because 
oh, I just kind of gave it away, but we know that this also becomes a problem in California. Um, and so he recommended Vitus rupestris for this. Hmm. Yeah. But eventually, right, the French, they come around to this idea and it worked. Um, and in 1888, the French wised up and in gratitude, they awarded Munson um, an award that loosely translates to the Order of Agricultural Merit or like the Legion of Honor. So a really high level, actually it's the highest award that could be given to a foreign civilian. So they were very thankful. And actually he was, um, Thomas Munson was only the second American that was given that honor. So any guesses on who might've been the first American to get this, this award? It wasn't the guy from Missouri, was it? No, yeah, okay. he was no. just important for that first discovery. Yeah. Um, it was another Thomas. Jefferson? Oh, that's what I was going to guess, but when I was reading this and guessing to myself, <laughs> what kind of person am I? Uh, no, actually, it was Thomas Edison. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, very cool. He's in good, good, good company there. Um, also out of this, Cognac, France, became the sister city to Munson's Texas home, um, where he was from or lived in Texas, Denison, Texas. And to commemorate this award, they had a centennial celebration in both Cognac and Denison, Texas in 1988. Um, and also in 1974, they established a TV Munson Memorial Vineyard to, to preserve many of the cultivars and produce stock for propagation. Um, and then there's also a Munson Viticulture and Enology Center there that serves as a repository for documents and other historical materials hmm. and houses research and conference and classrooms. And yeah, so he was a big guy, important guy, because that method is still in use today to combat. Pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. That was a lot. <laughs> yeah. So in 1888, that was when the International Phylloxera Congress was held in Bordeaux that officially endorsed the practice of grafting European grape varieties onto American native grape root, rootstocks. So <clears throat> kind of the bookends to that story. Uh, but it didn't just, you know, phylloxera doesn't understand borders. So it wasn't just a problem in France. It also spread to most other European, other European countries. And there's a little glimmer of hope for Spain. So we're going to move there next. Um, with the shortage of French wines, many producers during this time turned to Spain, specifically in the Rioja region. And French winemakers, as they were trying to get away from the effects of phylloxera, in particular, they crossed the borders and brought with them their expertise, as well as some French varietals that they introduced to the north of Spain. Um, further on this, in this area, all the way on the west, though, um, we see another side effect in Portugal. So vineyards in Portugal were devastated as well, and many wine regions, especially those in the south, actually never recovered, and they shift their attention instead to other agricultural endeavors, and among the industries that took root was raising and harvesting cork materials. And so thanks to phylloxera, Portugal today is one of the biggest producers in the world of cork. So. A blessing in disguise, I suppose. Yeah, totally. <clears throat> so lots to talk about. with. It didn't really play a big part in history at all. It was just a small thing. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> Teeny tiny. All right. Now we're going to hop um, to America and we're going to go to California. Um, and we're going to tell a story about a man named Augustin Haras. Um, so he is a man full of controversy. Uh and if, if there's any indication of that, he called himself Count or Colonel. 
Um, he came from Hungary and he came to America as a political fugitive in 1840. So when he came to America, he first arrived in Wisconsin. He founded a town after himself called Harasti, and he started a vineyard in Wisconsin. If you can imagine, the vines all froze. Um, but as luck would have it, the California gold rush was started to happen at this time, and off he went. Um, so he traveled to California, and he started a vineyard in San Diego. But he didn't like it, and so he moved on. He decided to try again in San Francisco. Um, but while he was in San Francisco, he was charged with embezzlement um, while he was working at the Mint. Later, he was exonerated and the charges were dropped, but that's still um, part of his controversy. Uh, but finally, he went to Sonoma. Um, and in 1857, the first commercial winery operation in California was in Sonoma called Una Vista Winery, um, and he hired Charles Krug as his winemaker. Ah. Yeah. So he was a relentless promoter of California wine. Um, and there's a claim that Harasti brought the first Zinfandel vines to California. Um, that's also subject of controversy. Um, in the 70s and 80s, the 1870s and 1880s, Harasti's son, Arpad, sure his name is pronounced differently than that i'm not sure but um stated that his father brought the first infandales to california in the 1850s um at that time his son arpad was a well-known sparkling wine producer in san francisco and he was the president of the california state board of viticultural commissioners um so his statement was ex ex widely accepted right you have this guy that's a producer prominent in the wine industry. He's claiming that his dad brought the first Zinfandel vines over and everyone believed him. Um, it took a century later, however, for a California wine historian, Charles Sullivan, to begin to challenge that statement. And in 2003, Sullivan published a book where he showed that other men were the ones who brought Zinfandel to the East Coast um, and then to California. So there is that. Um, even though Sullivan countered the argument that he brought Zinfandel over first, he praised him as an important figure in the history of the American West. Um, so that he has that going for him. Um, however, you think this guy, I mean, he created his um, prominent winery, but he was reckless and he went bankrupt. So he goes bankrupt. And then in 1868, he decides to leave California um, and he heads to Nicaragua. He formed a partnership with a German-born physician um, named Theodore Wassmer, and he began to develop a large sugar plantation, um, and he planned to produce rum and sell it to America. Um, however, on July 6, 1869, he disappeared on a river in his Nicaraguan property. So we don't know if he fell into the river and was washed out to sea or eaten by alligators. We know. We never know. His body was never found. Mm, what a mystery. Um, yeah. But in 2007, he was, Hazarthi was inducted into the Vintners Hall of Fame um, by the Culinary Institute of America. So, and in 1890s, Zinfandel is the most planted grape in America. So whether or not he was actually the first person to bring it over to California, um, he still helped make it very famous and prominent in the area. Um, another thing going on at this time is wine labels. So I know we've talked previously about, you know, bottles and corks coming to be. Um, at this time, too, we don't have consistent wine labels. Um, but
but top Bordeaux properties were becoming better known and they were being branded kind of by their quirks. But we have um, the Grocers Licensing Act of 1860, and this is where bottles could be sold in shops individually, but they had to be identifiable. Um, and so now we have a glue that's available that could stick to glass and the paper label became commonplace. Um, Bordeaux and Germany were the two that led the way in designing labels that promoted their superiority and individuality. Um, and then going back to the phylloxera crisis a little bit, one other side effect of this, you know, we have a shortage of wine. And so it led to a lot of fraud and counterfeiting during this time. Um, so with the labels, you could get lots of information off of a label in the 1800s, but it wasn't until the next century, it wasn't until the 1900s that you could know that the information was accurate. Hmm. So we have labels, but we don't know if they're right or not. Well, you got to start somewhere, I guess. <laughs> um, hopping over to Australia in the 1870s, um, you know, we have the Australian wine industry is becoming successful. We talked about the last episode. Australia and New Zealand taking off. At the 1873 Vienna expedition, exhibition in um, Vienna, the French judges were doing a blind tasting um, and they praised some wines from Victoria. They didn't know it, however, because it was a blind tasting. And then once they figured out that it wasn't French wine, they withdrew from the competition and protest when it was revealed that it was Australian wines. So similar story to what we've heard with America, but we have that with Australia as well in the 1870s. Mm. And then our last hop across um, the world in the 1800s is going back to um, Champagne. So we're going back to, to France. Um, but Champagne and its marketing genius kind of take off in this time period as well. So Champagne became more and more widely available in the 1800s. And so because it's white, more widely available, it became more marketed and advertised. Um, so for the 1889 Universal Expo Exposition in Paris, Mercier built the largest barrel in the world. It took 20 years to construct, and it could hold 200,000 bottles of wine. Um, it was drawn through Paris by 24 white oxen um, during this Universal Exposition. Mercier also made the world's first advertising film about champagne, had a giant advertising hot air balloon that unfortunately broke loose and ended up in Austria, but that hot air balloon advertisement made it pretty far. Um, and in England, we start seeing music hall stars promoting champagne. So this is kind of the first we see, you know, of, of the advertising with famous stars. So we have two singers. We have the great Vance who promoted Viv, oh my gosh, Joe, I need you on these pronunciations. Um, Viv Clicquot? Viv Clicquot, yeah. The widow, widow yep. Clicquot. And then we have George Laybourne, um, who is also called Champagne Charlie, and he pr um, promoted Moe and Chandon, um, and they held a singing duel from either side of the London stage. So we have, you know, specific singers that are promoting different famous champagne houses. Um, yeah. And then we have Hollywood and we have famous stars like James Bond um, drinking champagne. It's said that Marilyn Monroe ordered 150 bottles at a time so that she could bathe in it. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Is she drinking some of that bathwater as well? <laughs> um, and just think, you know, that reputation kind of stuck 
that champagne is like the celebratory party wine. Um, you know, we're just now kind of breaking out of that and hoping that champagne's more of an everyday um, drinker. But we see that tradition starting in the the 1800s of it of it being this special drink. And I would just like to also point out that there was another important construction for the 1889 Universal Exposition in Paris, which was the Eiffel Tower. And I looked up how long it took to build the Eiffel Tower. It was two years, two months, and five days. So it took (laughs) way longer to build that giant barrel. 20 years versus two years. Good Lord. Mm. Well, I mean, if you want to make the Eiffel Tower hold on to some bottles of wine, I'm sure that would take a little more time, too. (laughs) Yeah. But one of those had a... Well, I don't know, actually. I was going to say one of those had a longer lasting impression, but champagne marketing is, is really lasted centuries too. So yeah, don't know. And that wraps up our 1800s. That was a lot going on in that century. Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. Mainly phylloxera. Yeah. (laughs) And a big barrel. (laughs) (laughs) Big barrel. (laughs) Well, we look forward to jumping into the 20th century next time. Yeah. We do have some far-fetched food pairings. If, um, we want to yeah, dig deep let's for go those. For that. But, yeah. Okay. Um, so in honor of phylloxera and its American, you know, uh, savior, <laughs> uh, to for a food pairing for American rootstock, while these aren't actually grapes that are used in any wine, just the rootstock, we would stretch and do a pairing with an American varietal. So, of course, we have to think muscadine for this. And muscadine lends itself really nicely, as we know, to barbecue with um, the red sauce or spicy Thai, which we love to pair unusual, unexpected things with. And I guess, sorry, let me clarify barbecue. I'm talking like Lexington style, not, what is it, East? Eastern. Eastern style. Yeah. Like Lexington instead of like the mustard based. So that's my clarification there. Um, For another American classic, we've got California Zinfandel. And you can't go wrong with a pizza with maybe some caramelized onions, some feta. I don't know. You do a lot of things here. I like a that. barbecue chicken pizza. Mm-hmm. See that going over well. Um, we did talk about Australia here for a second and how it competed nicely against French wines this century. Um, so for that, we've got an Australian Shiraz, um, <laughs> which... We had a nice but awful laugh about pairing it with those little baby, baby doll, baby, whatever they called the little baby lambs. They're teeny tiny, um, but not really. We've so, talked about them in so many segments. I think they would be tasty. <laughs> <laughs> They're just so cute. They would be delightful. Um, burgers, of course, anything with like a sharp flavor that can pair against the Shiraz would be great. So, <clears throat> you know, maybe a burger with a sharp cheese on it go crazy Mm. yeah and then of course we talked about champagne and how the marketing really took off this century so champagne doesn't have to just be for a celebration it can pair nicely with anything um i I think that the high low pairings with champagne are kind of fun so you know thinking like everyday sort of snacks like potato chips or popcorn i think are fun pairings with champagne um maybe almost a little overdone at this point but really you can't go wrong with anything with that no, I mean, and as you know, Southerners, fried chicken. So, mm. yeah, popcorn shrimp. Yeah. Yeah. Calabash shrimp. Yeah. Yeah. Anything so fried so goes currents. well with shrimp. Yeah. So. 
hush puppies. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I'm getting hungry. I know. Same um, here. <laughs> <laughs> and we wanted to put in one plug. We are hosting a wine mouth summer camp this year. Um, it'll be the first time we're holding it, but it's going to be August 8th, 9th and 10th. And it will be held at wineries um, in Davie County. And so we're thinking like your favorite summer camp activities, but with a an adult wine twist. Hmm. <laughs> um, we're going to be doing a, a deep dive in each night into science. Um, so in how grapes are grown, how wine is made, and then into the tasting experience. So three nights um, all in one week. So we think it's going to be a lot of fun. You can find out more information on our website which is a good reminder to actually go put it on there. I'm going to do that in a second. Um, and you can sign up through Davidson Davy Community College for that. Very cool. I think it sounds very exciting. Yeah, we're, I'm pumped. Oh, and we got hats too. <laughs> got wine mouth hats. You have to have some merch for summer camp. It's going to be hot out there for sure. Yeah, you can show it off to all your friends when you get back to school in, fall, in the fall. <laughs> but thanks so much. This was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. We learned a lot for this century. We're looking forward, as Joe said, to coming into the 20th century. Yeah, we're going to drag that century out, so be prepared. (laughs) Perfect. Well, Jesse and Jessica, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram, at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. All right, so we're back. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about... Maybe let's start with the education piece of it, because we just kind of picked up with the whole elevated tasting experience and bringing them through... Um, let's talk a little bit about how your experiences as the winemakers help with crafting that experience to bring that education to the general public. Um, I One of the most fun parts of this incredibly fun job is to help educate people so that they enjoy the wine experience even more. So my general way of thinking about it is this. Pitch so that people can get a hit. Give them, this is another example of meet people where they are. Um, If you are a neophyte, novice wine drinker, the human brain is basically a difference engine. If you give them two wines, even if if they're not a wine drinker, you can say, which one do you like more, A or B? And then that empowers them to have an opinion. Um, Explaining what, what wine is, how it's made, you have to assess the crowd you're talking to. I had someone say to me, oh, this process of winemaking is fascinating. So what exactly do you put the alcohol in? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Or this process of winemaking is fascinating. When do you add in all of the berry flavors and the hard spices? Do you soak them in a bag? And and that just informs you as to where you need to start the story. Um, I can certainly talk as detailed as people want to get in the chemistry of wine, the clones that we use, Uh, the barrels that we use and all of those things but the simplest way the metaphors the analogies that i use are like this Um, you can get water from a tap on the wall sugar from a bag and oak from a barrel but you must get flavor from your vineyard that's very very simple so all great wines start in the vineyard and then andrew and i we are given something for free the vineyard the vintage gives us something for free 
and then wineries exist to correct for the oddity of the vintage and the vineyard. So we bring the fruit into the, into the winery and we're like craftsmen. We are not artists and we are not scientists. We're this beautiful combination of, of these two things. We are craftsmen. Somebody asked Michelangelo how he sculpted the statue of David. And he said, I took the most beautiful piece of marble I could find and I chipped away everything that did not belong there. I released what was inside. And this is how we view it. We are trying to be craftsmen and bring everything correct and square. So that as the wine is made and, and it ages, it ends up at that point of vision that we want it to be. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think one of the big things my parents are really going for is that no matter what you do here at Mountain Brook, we want it to not come across as snooty and unapproachable, no matter where you are um, and what knowledge that you have here. So, um, and that, like he said, we'll meet them halfway with the education and everything that, that they need or that they want to receive with that. So I think that's a really big point. And I also was going to say that for us, we're learning every day too. Um, North Carolina is still so new to a lot of people. Um, it's almost like an ongoing experiment. We get to share our findings with everyone that coming through the door, which I think is really, really cool. Um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of what I was going to say is like, we've been doing the winemaking process now and we're finding certain barrels that work really well with certain North Carolina varieties and depending on how you know ripe they came in and everything. So um, that's just one of many things that we're finding and uh, it, we're being educated through North Carolina as well and then we get to share our findings with everyone, which I think is really, really cool. So. Andrew came to me one day with you know a surprising piece of information and he said, Dave, what are we gonna do? And I said, I don't know. Let's think about this and we'll figure it out. Um, this is an incredibly dynamic system. Um, it is a multivariate thing that there's no supercomputer on the face of the earth that can possibly puzzle its way through. <laughs> and yet, Chat GPT will try that. Right? <laughs> and we, we are charged with uh, doing this. And this is, the, this is the, 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 the creative and craftsman part of it. Mm -hmm. um, certainly from my time in the industry, uh, I have some of the most absolutely dead classic wonderful winemaking techniques under my belt you you could possibly have one of my jobs of which there are many is to decrease our chance of failure and increase our chance of success so there are classic techniques of when to pick the grapes how to play with adjust the chemistry how to ferment the grapes and then what's been interesting to me is the culture of winemaking in the east coast in general and the carolinas in particular is to kind of eschew the use of new oak. Um, the, I think the thoughts were that you did not want to cover up the flavor of, of the grapes and you wanted to feature the fruit. And while that's fine, if you really want to put yourself onto the world stage of the greatest wines, which I think we, we can be, you sort of have to use the techniques and bring, and bring them to bear in a way that um, bring out the classic nature of wines in general. So our use of fermentation, our use of uh, new French oak, new American oak, new North Carolina oak, how hot to ferment, all of these things are just um, very, very classic Burgundian and Bordelais techniques. But I think that, that we're just reintroducing them to the area because they either um, fell out of disfavor, perhaps were, were misunderstood, or quite frankly, they're very expensive to do. 
Um, but for Andrew and I, our mission statement, when we look each other in the eye, we say this to each other, making great wine is never a matter of convenience, but it is always a matter of necessity. Um, we have never woken up in the morning and gone, Dave, man, today I came to work and I wanted to come in fifth place so bad. <laughs> we do not say that to each other. We, we are here to um, get the best out of what the land has to, has to offer. I myself, as a team, we are custodians of flavor. Our job is to faithfully translate the vineyard into the bottle. However, this is, this is a full contact sport. This is not passive. If you want to look at the nature of terroir, it's the human translation and interpretation of getting it into the bottle that really counts. So if all you have is just a pure fruit bomb, you know, picked early, fermented, cold, no new oak, no ML kind of thing, it's an example of something, but it's probably not, a, it's probably not a, an example of delicious. Um, we want to make our wines intellectually engaging and hedonistically delicious. Is that really too much to ask? <laughs> no, 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 it's not. Any other thoughts on winemaking that you've that you've learned, Andrew? Uh, I mean, one thing that I think that I've learned, especially, is I, I'm a big red drinker. I, I love red wines, and you know that kind of makes white wines go to the side a lot. And I think we get a lot of people in here that you know they like one or the other more, and. I think working with Dave a lot more, I've seen the appreciation um, and the difficulty it takes to make a really good white wine. Um, the balance that you have to get with everything and every little tweak that you do to it, it's so delicate, it changes everything. Um, so I think educating people on that and the appreciation that it takes for each wine. Reds are a little bit more resilient, I'll give them that, um, but to kind of balance those finer reds out, I think why Pinot Noir is so delicious, right? It's so it's so delicate. Um, it's and that's why it's one of the favorites with a lot of people. But it's really hard to make a really good one because there's something that can get it out of whack each time. So I think kind of educating people to get an appreciation for something, even if they don't care for it as much, is really big. Um, and then you and then also finding something that they like. I think we have a couple wines that we've been working on to where it's almost like that red drinker's white. It's a little bit bigger. It's kind of what, you know, someone who prefer, prefers a red would kind of actually like. And I think educating people that there's a wine for everyone um, is also really big and wine and food, especially too. Yeah. So um, that's a big one for me. So I am, I'm constantly reminded that people come in with preconceptions of, I only drink red wine or I only drink white wine. <laughs> yeah. And I think... Those drive me nuts. How, how sad for you. And I yes, come up with exactly. Pith, I come up with pithy little things like this. As the winemaker, I get to say, you know, the first duty of wine is neither to be white nor red, it is to be great. Yeah. And they look at me like, what? Well, great according to who? And I'm like, me, of course. <laughs> at some point, I get to have an opinion. So do you. But um, uh, I, for years, I studied neuroscience and neurobiology. And there's a physiological phenomenon called attenuation. If you listen to loud music all the time, your ears attenuate to it, and it tends not to be so loud. It, it's an, an adaptive function. So if all you ever do is drink big, 
heavy tannic red wines, your taste buds attenuate to that and you tend not to be able to appreciate them so much. Mm -hmm. So every red wine drinker says, I only drink these big, big red wines and lots of tannin, you know, they beat you over the head with a two by four. I tell them you must, you must, you owe it to yourself to find some white wine that you like to reset your palate so that you can go forward and enjoy these things more. Mm -hmm. um, as I said earlier, our brain is basically a difference engine. We can learn over time to take more variables into, into consideration, but it's, but it's very important to give your palate different looks and different flavors and different textures and different acidities especially. Um, wine is an acid-preserved beverage at its core and acidity changes every other aspect of the wine. And uh, for us, I think one of the things we've, we've brought to this game in this, in this area is a different take on what the concept of balance is. If you think about wine as a teeter-totter, because most people have seen one of these, this, yeah. is, a, this is a good metaphor. You think about wine as a teeter-totter, that balance point, that fulcrum point, is the intensity of the fruit. That's the moment you harvest. And you can hang acidity, alcohol, tannin, oak. You can, you can put those, you can layer those onto the wine, but only to the extent that the fruit is there to support it. So then I lapse into another great Davism of wines aren't over-oaked, they're underwined. And people go, what? Like, really? Um, the great wines of the world have very high oak content, not just because oak... You're using oak for oak's sake, but the greatest wines of the world are the wines with the most tension on the palate. They have oak pulling on fruit, pulling on acidity, pulling on tannin, and then you add in a sense of minerality as even a fourth or fifth dimension. All that tension is what creates the intellectual engagement to make it so interesting to drink. It has to be a visceral experience. There has to be a good texture to the wine and good flavors and good aroma. But it also has to be engaging to the mind to really activate the experience. The experience, hey, that's what our new tasting room is called. <laughs> Coincidence? No, I Way think to tie not. that back in. Right, I think not. So, Dave, you've only been in North Carolina eight months. What's the, what's the most exciting thing or most interesting thing that you've learned while you've been here? The absolute and utter openness of not only our customers, but the other winemakers and the wine culture People are absolutely willing to come out, learn, spend time, try new things. There are people who are dedicated to wine enjoyment. They will come here on a rainy day, on a cold day, on a hot day. It doesn't matter. They are coming out because they're interested. Um, there's not unlimited possibility in this area, but close. There are definitely issues with the weather, but there are those things everywhere. Uh, yeah. You know, in California, there's fire, drought, you know, all at this point, floods. Right. Uh, there are, are all those things. So no area is perfect. It's how you adapt to them and um, how you all, all you can do, all we can do. We we are excellent winemakers, Andrew and I. We are good at what we do. We are not, however, magicians. Given a level playing field of the weather and access to the grapes and access to equipment and whatever else, I think we can do a great job. And really, from what I've seen in my in my short time here, um, the wines that can be produced in our in our area can match those anywhere else in the world. I really mean this. And I don't think people have really at their core felt that. And that's what we want to bring to the area is no, we 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 can hold our heads high and be on on the world stage of wine 
very, very quickly here. This will become obvious to everyone very soon. What do you What do you always like to say? You like to say, I don't want to hear it's good enough for North Carolina. Oh, <laughs> the great disclaimer. That's pretty good for North Carolina. Oh, no, yeah, you got to live that. No more of that. No more. No more. There's no more disclaimers. This is great wine. When I got here, when I um, came out for an interview in uh, the third, third week of July, and our vineyard manager, David Hobbs, uh, part of the great, very, very well-known uh, Hobbs family from uh, Napa, Paul Hobbs and et cetera. When Dave took me out to the estate vineyard, Red Bell Run, if I had been dropped out of a helicopter into that vineyard, well, first of all, it would hurt. <laughs> yeah, that's not the point here. If, if, if I had just not known where I was and I was in the middle of that vineyard, I could have been anywhere in Bordeaux, anywhere in Napa. It looked pristine and gorgeous. And that was really the moment where I said, okay, I want to be a part of this. If I had seen something that was going to be make it impossible for me to really practice my craft, I think I would have begged out. But no, it can be done. Um, it is not always easy. If it were easy, everybody would do it and do it well. It takes effort. You have to lean into it. You have to you, you have to make it a passion. You have to you have to pay attention. You have to engage. Uh, this is a full contact sport. This is a when Andrew. Okay, I told this to Andrew. When you start making wine when you're 26 years old. And you retire when you're when you're 70 you only get 44 chances to practice your craft that's it that's all you get we are serious as a damn heart attack about what we do because we do not get many chances to practice our craft and if you want to be part of the legacy of this incredible undertaking that is winemaking you damn well pay attention for sure it's a really good viewpoint to yeah, have absolutely so we've talked a little bit about what the new experience is going to be and kind of some of the, the buildings here and, and all the improvements and transformations that have been going on here. But we haven't really talked about what the current experience is when someone comes here to visit Mountain Brook. So what would you say the experience is for visitors? And what do you want the experience to be for visitors? Since Andrew is currently doing all of the tasting room work. Andrew? Yeah, no, so I think our main goal is we want everyone to have a memorable experience that comes here and feel like like dave said that it's a getaway that they're getting away from their normal lives and coming out and enjoying something that um really can bring them a lot of joy um, and feel like the, like an escape and right now it's um up, up top of it, it's experiencing the outdoor elements it's you know enjoying the nice weather we will be having live music coming back so enjoying some nice music um family friends we do allow kids up there as well your dogs are welcome up there um so it's just you know enjoying wine it's enjoying wine with your friends and family and um like i said getting that escape and there is still so, uh, an educational aspect of it. We do have our flights currently as our, as our standard tastings up there. Um, it's a little bit more casual to where you get a, a broad um, overview of all the wines. Um, and uh, like I said, in, in the skate, uh, we also will be having our movies and everything and food trucks. So uh, there's a lot of ways to enjoy this place. And we want people to feel like they, they can do that and make that still a main priority up there with how large that space is comparatively to our barrel room is going to be a little bit more limited, but um, that's kind of it. It's the casual, the getaway where you've enjoyed our wines, you can enjoy them here at this beautiful property 
overlook all the new vineyards that's out there um, and just share it with everyone. So I think that's the, the main takeaway for right now. Um, and then we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of each winemaking process down here if that's what some people would like a little bit more. So Very cool. And I will say we've We've been here in the nice weather and it's great, but we've also been here when it's been pouring down rain <laughs> and it's, you have so many different places you can actually just still enjoy your experience yeah. here. I mean, there's nothing more peaceful than sipping like a, a red wine on a slightly cool day when there's just pouring rain outside and you see it and it's just like, oh, this is cool. We're outside, but we're sheltered. Absolutely. And I do want to give a big shout out to our, our serving staff up there. They, they put in a lot of work and effort. They work really hard. Um, throughout the year and uh, do everything they absolutely can to give the best experience possible to everyone. So um, they're always hustling. So I got to give them, <laughs> they, I, they have a lot, I give them a lot of respect. So thank you to them and everything for helping share that and give the guests the experience that we would like them to have when they come in. So this, this is something to be said about the wine drinking population around here. These people are incredible. They are so diehard. They are so resilient. If they want to come out and have a glass of wine, cold day, hot day, rainy day, windy day, they will come. I've said this before. I will say this again. The, these folks, they want the experience. And in other parts of the world, um, the California Tasting Rooms, for instance, you would first of all, you would never see something as big as we have here. They're so much smaller. Okay, that speaks to the percentage of people in the community that want to come do this thing. That's one. The other one is they will sit outside in nice weather, inclement weather. They're, they are going to do it. So with this um, new kind of luxury tasting room, we're simply giving them a more, <laughs> a more environmentally stable place to do it, um, which I feel like we, we owe uh, to the people to have a, a little bit more controlled atmosphere. If you're a diehard wine drinker and you want to sit and you want to ponder and enjoy the, the incredible aromas coming out of a glass of our Cabernet Sauvignon, um, doing that outside on a windy day is a challenge, but having a reflective moment with your wine, with your company, with yourself, with your own thoughts, with the generosity of those around you, it's just a different sort of experience. And we want people to have the option to do that if they would like to do that. Very That's cool. what I'm looking forward to. So let's spend a few minutes maybe talking about the wines specifically. So what wines are currently on the on the list and maybe any sneak peeks at anything that's coming down the pike? We have that list. Awesome. Andrew? <laughs> yeah. Um, so currently... Um, like I said, up top, we have, we will have a specific menu coming out for that, where it's going to be, uh, mainly our white wines being Viognier, Chardonnay, uh, Riesling, Rosé, the Bell, which is, um, a blend of Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, and, um, and Viognier altogether. Did you notice that day? Yeah. He, he said I Pinot Gris. I got I did. Gris. <laughs> Um, I'm actually taking notes. All together. So we call that one the Bell because it's all the white varietals over at Red Bell Run. We made a really lovely blend out of that. Um, so those will be the whites up top. We do have um, Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Gris, but those are starting to dwindle and run lower. So they'll probably be going out soon. Um, and then the reds being our all-in, our Cabernet Sauvignon uh, BDX, our 2020 BDX, and our Merlot 2020. So those will be the main ones up there. 
um, up top or down below in the barrel room, uh, the experience um, are going to be a variety. We will have some new releases out in that. Um, for one of them, it's going to be our new released Chardonnay, our new released Riesling, as well as our Pinot Noir, our Zinfandel, and a Petite Syrah, which we have not released yet. Um, and then uh, that'll be one tasting option. Another tasting option, we'll have a couple wines that we are bottling April 17th. Um, those being our Wooden Steel, which is... What a cool name, Andrew. <laughs> yes. Which is our uh, stainless steel fermented um, barrel-aged Chardonnay. Mm. It is neutral oak on that with some leaves to kind of just give it a little bit more body. But the the fruit flavors are fantastic. Um, very, very... They uh, uh, like to say it's Ode to Chablis for yeah, that one. Chablis, it's true. It is. It is definitely very Chablis style. And then um, a new rosé of Merlot. Um, that we will be bottling April 17th as well. Um, and a new version of the Bell we'll be bottling will be available down here. That one is uh, those same varietals, but we did, uh, we pressed some of the Chardonnay and Viognier together, um, as well as the Pinot Gris and Chardonnay together, um, and put those into some very nice punchins. That is turned out very, very nicely. So we'll be doing the blend for that uh, coming up very shortly for bottling. and. Um, lastly, we'll have uh, our Cabernet available down here as well um, as our BDX and Merlot kind of rounding out the main um, ones from the estates here. So, yeah. You know, you just reminded me, um, the vintage 2022, I think, will really represent a watershed year, a, real, you know, a very serious sea change for um, Mountain Brook Vineyards, certainly, as uh, the farming of the vineyards that we source the grapes from. Red Bell Run took an, an, an enormous step forward. The quality of the farming was just extraordinary, as I mentioned before. And then the real forethought that Andrew and I put into how to create the puzzle pieces we knew that we would need later on to kind of create the vision of the wines we wanted to make. Um, I look at the new version of the Bell, absolutely riveting white wine blend, just a gorgeous, gorgeous thing as an aperitif, Epically, epically balanced, have it with some ceviche, things like that. It's just such such a beautiful blend of white wine flavors. The rosé, how many times have people said, rosé, I don't like rosé. <laughs> no, there are no bad dogs, there are just bad owners. There are no bad varietals or styles, there are just some winemakers that really probably need to rethink how they're doing it. So the rosé that we do, completely dry style, uh, ripe, lovely, rose petal, mm -hmm. Gorgeous thing. Um, we've gotten some excellent feedback when we've tasted people out of the barrel. And then that last one, which I think is a joy for this place and for our community of winemakers, is this thing that we joke that we very, you know, jokingly called wooden, W-O-O-D-E-N, wooden steel, because it was fermented in stainless steel and then aged in oak. Fermented in stainless steel to preserve the purity of the fruit, and then aged in oak to add complexity. It's also non-malolactic for those of you keeping score. <laughs> so uh, it has this incredible purity of fruit, but the complexity that comes from the oak aging. And it will really be a remarkable wine to come out of North Carolina. I don't think that anyone has done uh, a style like this of this quality just because I just because it, it's just 
hard to do. The vintage gave it to us. The guy doing the farming, David Hobbs, is the, is the grape whisperer. And Andrew and I had the forethought to see all of this coming and envision something that was really different. It was just really different. So it was that beautiful um, intersection of all the options and we managed to recognize it at, at the moment and help it come into being. It was always there, but it's that Michelangelo sculpture thing. You have to recognize it for what it is and help um, bring it into being. That's so much of the art of winemaking. Yeah, I'm also very excited though. So we have a, our next bottling will be in July and that'll be um, a couple additional Chardonnays. So we will be doing three different styles of Chardonnay. Um, like you said, the wooden steel, the more kind of eau de Chablis. And then we have our um, Chardonnay that's been in some neutral oak, but full mallow on it. And then um, our full tilt boogie, as Dave likes to call it, with a um, <laughs> uh, lot of, it'll have uh, Francois Frere oak on it, um, full mallow. And then I think about one neutral oak barrel going into it just to add some of that depth and complexity to it. But um, those are, fantastic and um really exciting i'm i'm excited to have three different kind of chardonnays just to show the versatility of that yeah. grape um like because that. it's a fantastic varietal honestly so you just okay Agreed. so you you reminded me of um something we're doing a style of chardonnay that is um it is as much flavor as as you can pack into um, a bottle of wine from from that vintage picked nicely ripe um fermented you know cool and it is done in 100% new French oak. And you know, people would say, that's too much oak. Well, please refer to my previous statement that wines aren't over oak, they're underwined. That wine tastes great at that level. If you build them that way and you envision them to be that way, they can be just fine. We can always blend it back with something, but just the statement that that wine makes that, that it can be done is important for this reason. If you want to make a name for this winery and you want to make a name for this region, and this burgeoning Appalachian and this state, um, you need to make wines that are that are recognizable to, to the greater wine world. Of oh my God, that has all those hallmarks of greatness, balance, technique of winemaking, technique of growing, and that's the statement that we're trying to make with wines like that and with wines like these. That yes, it can be done here. It absolutely can. Very important to us. So anything else you want customers to know about Mountain Brook and then maybe tell us how to find you on the social medias and the web and physically. Oh, please. You cannot point at me for that one, Andrew. <laughs> well, let's start off. Let's, anything else that you want visitors to know or listeners to know about Mountain Brook? Um, I'm terrible at social media. He's, <laughs> he's the king of that. I am social. <laughs> and I like the media but like not together but not together no <laughs> um what do I want people to know okay um I think what I would like people to know about Mountain Brook is we are welcoming to everyone we want everyone to come here no matter what your knowledge is in wine um and just come together and you know and enjoy your time here we want you to take something out of it we want you whether whether you come here and you, you didn't enjoy any of our wines but you learned something and you know you got to take something from it or you got to be guided on a journey and find the magic of wine that you know you didn't really know 
existed. Um, I think I'm just going to go personally for me real quick that I, I never thought I would be doing this in a million years, but just learning that there's just, there's, you can always constantly learn something about wine. You cannot know everything. There is always something new and that fascinates me and just makes me want to try so hard <laughs> to try to learn everything. But um, sharing that and just kind of sharing the appreciation for wine and, and the culture that it can kind of bring is really what I would like to share with people when they come here. I think my, my parents as well will speak for me on that as well, that they want people to come in no matter their knowledge and just take something from it and you know, just remember it um, and, and really enjoy the experience every second that they're here. So that's what I really want people to know when they come to Mountain Brook. That's what we're trying to do. We want everyone to have an enjoyable time. Our main goal is to make fantastic wines, and that's what we're doing right now. Um, and we would love to share those with people, but also give them the education and, and immerse them in that culture as well. Um, that's really coming about here in North Carolina. I, I just realized something. This is a this is a brand new way of thinking about it for me. Is we're like a knowledge pool. You can jump in the shallow end or you can jump in the deep end. We're there for That's you. It's a good good you analogy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're definitely there for you. We even have some flotation devices. If you, <laughs> if you really, the, we, yeah. we won't let you drown. Yeah, little swimmies or noodles. Yeah. yeah, but if you if you want to come here and have a glass of sangria, that is fine. If you want to come here and have um, a glass of absolutely epic uh, Cabernet Sauvignon that really actually takes your breath away and makes you stop in your tracks and really think about, wow, this is what flavor can be like. This is what the experience can be like. We are there for you. I can't reiterate this enough. We will meet you where you are mm -hmm. and we will help guide you along the path. Excellent. Yeah. Well, tell folks how to find you then. Yeah, you can find us on our website at uh, mountainbrookvineyards.com. We also do have social media. We post a lot on our Facebook, Mountain Brook Vineyards, and our Instagram as well, Mountain, at, uh, at Mountain Brook Vineyards. So um, those are our main kind of methods of contact. We do respond by email at info at mountainbrookvineyards.com. So, um, so if you have any inquiries, you're welcome to send them there as well. You'll probably get myself answering those emails. So, um, yeah, and then we also do private events and everything as well. So if you have a wedding that you uh, would like to book or a private event coming up for family, friends that you'd like to book, we also do those as well. And you can email those at info at So We're all starting this journey together. I feel like we're in the first generation right now of people re-relearning about making and enjoying wine, and we want people to join us on this journey. Come with us on this journey. We have wine. Awesome. Well, thank you both. We appreciate your time, and this was a wonderful conversation. We encourage everyone to come out to Mountain Brook and see what's going on. Please come back and see us soon. This has been wonderful. Thank Thanks. you. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Andrew and Dave. The changes that they're making at Mountain Brook help elevate the experience there and North Carolina wine as a whole. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers.
This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape.